Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there and Merry Christmas, Solar Warrior. Welcome back for one more episode of The Decade. It's so amazing that this time next week we'll be in a new year, but yeah, we'll be in a new decade as well. The 20s are upon us. Wow, as we round out the year with this, the 210th episode of Suncast, we cap on a year of amazing progress and success in the solar and clean energy industry. The energy transition is well underway, and here on Suncast, we produced a whopping 75 episodes this year. As we wrap the year and the decade that saw solar break into the mainstream, we're greeted with California's one millionth solar installation just last week, bringing to fruition the legislation that sparked my own entry into the solar race back in 2006, which is California's landmark SB1. Quick hat tip to my friends and former Suncast guests, Sam Vanderhoof, Jeff Spees, Bernadette Del Chiaro, and a host of others who recently celebrated this monumental occasion by presenting Governor Schwarzenegger and Brown with some very special solar panels as memorabilia. I've got a link to that video over in the show notes, so you can feel free to go see it for yourself. It's really quite special. Thanks, Jeff Spees, for sharing that. Well, today's guest helps us take a look back at the simple beginnings of SB1 since he was instrumental in the shaping of that legislation and has been a true solar warrior in Sacramento and beyond for nearly two decades. Lloyd Levine has served in or worked with the California State Legislature since 2002, and he's had a front row seat to virtually all major policy that has helped shape that state's leading role in championing solar and now energy storage and ushering in the age of energy transition that we're also valiantly defending right now. Lloyd and I spend some time today pontificating the leadership role California has and continues to play on the world stage. We look at the important role that electric vehicles are having on grid planning. We even discuss the state of the PG&E bankruptcy and consider what's to come. Lloyd has had some fantastic insider insights and share some anecdotes with us. So thanks for showing up for one more final episode of the year and the decade. Now get ready to tune up your knowledge, Solo Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Joining us today is Mr. Lloyd Levine, president of Filament Strategies. Lloyd was recently also appointed Senior Policy Fellow at UC Riverside School of Public Policy. He's been a member of California State Legislature and notably was involved in the early legislation that led to our current uh, solar market in California. We'll talk about that and more. First, welcome to Suncast, Lloyd. Thank you very much. Appreciate being on, Nico. It's good to talk to you. 
Absolutely. And great to talk to you as well. Uh, we've been having some real fun conversations and I've enjoyed learning more about your involvement in the early days of what has become one of the largest solar markets in the world. So I would like to explore that. I mentioned in the lead up that it is worth exploring the notion that California, as they say, in many places, as goes California, so goes the, the country. And in some, in some cases, so goes the world in a new economy, as it were, where distributed generation is uh, increasing. Uh, California is uh, setting the standard once again for renewable portfolio standards. But we also have huge investor and utilities like Pacific Gas and Electric going, you know, declaring bankruptcy and, and turning everyone's power off during wildfires. We have to ask, is the, is the policy working? And is this something that states should, uh, should look at as a template? But I'll intro there by asking a bit about your background, Lloyd. I mentioned that you were involved in the early legislation. I also mentioned that you were involved in California legislature. Tell me about your the inner workings of how the SB1, the famous uh, million solar roofs legislation, came about and, and your work there. Sure, happy to. It's, I mean, it's a very, very, very important piece of legislation, uh, you know, landmark piece of legislation, not just for California, but really across the United States and around the world. I should also tell you, I wasn't just a member of the legislature. I chaired for four plus years the Committee on Utilities and Commerce, which oversaw electricity in California along with the PUC. So, you know, I, I you know, I didn't uh, introduce the solar initiative. We, you know, the, a lot of these things can happen behind the scenes. And it was introduced on the Senate side as SB1. And, you know, we followed very closely. We were part of the conversations. And then when it came to my committee, we led the negotiations with, uh, we being me, my, my staff uh, and the assembly, we led the negotiations with Governor Schwarzenegger, the PUC, uh, and all of the different players to try and uh, get the legislation passed uh, and you know, obviously, the PUC had a huge hand in it. The legislature had a huge hand in it. And at the end of the day, I mean, there were obviously tinkers that went on, you know, for years afterwards. I think we did a really good job. And I think the evidence is in the cost of solar panels today versus the cost of solar panels, you know, 10 plus years ago. You know, we really, we looked at this not just as a solar energy uh, bill, solar energy legislation, but as uh, solar market development. And I, and it's a, a distinction there that's important. You know, it wasn't just about the energy, but it was also about uh, providing the incentives necessary to reduce, to, to deploy solar panels and then to reduce the cost long term. And, and as an impetus, it certainly did that. California grew at a pace that a uh, few other states were able to ma uh, keep up with or maintain or achieve. Uh, uh, but and it, and it was, in fact, the bellwether, apart from California's solar initiative tied to SB1, you were also involved in the initial uh, renewable portfolio standards getting set at 20% and then evolving to 33 now. Everyone knows they're at 100%. I think it begs the question, um, given that it achieved its goal of uh, helping reduce the overall cost for homeowners to go solar at a time when it was prohibitively expensive, are incentives still, and, and, and even mechanisms like a 100% renewable portfolio standard still necessary or effective in today's market? Well, I mean, it depends upon the jurisdiction. That's, you know, certainly you'd need the 100%, you know, RPS standard in California. And I, I should add, this is not the concept embodied in SB1, although complex, isn't necessarily unique. Governments at all levels around the country and around the world provide incentives to, uh, you know, to 
get behavior change, to get market change where they feel it is necessary. Uh, and certainly, you know, creating a renewable portfolio standard at a time when renewables weren't necessarily as cost competitive with central station, say, natural gas fired power plants and other uh, other things that were out on the market created the impetus. It helped, you know, it helped spur development of the technologies, uh, which then helped drop the cost, and they do become cost competitive. And one one thing you need to look at, obviously, you know, is the fuel cost of say wind and the fuel cost of solar is zero. Um, the sun doesn't charge us to rise every morning, so you know you have to to weigh the, the the fuel cost of say natural gas or nuclear or some of these other technologies against the fuel cost, and then look at the construction costs, the implementation cost of the technologies, and so an RPS in California made and still makes sense uh, as a policy goal. Does that make sense in other jurisdictions? It depends upon what your resource mix is, what the cost of, of um, you know, of technologies are, cost of energy generating technologies. It depends upon what your policy goals are. Um, but I, you know, I, I, so it's hard for me to say from one state to the next state to the next state where whether it's necessary or just a good idea. I'm also wondering though when you, when we look at the uh, American reinvestment uh, the American reinvestment act ARRA a large portion of the money that was spent over the last decade for that was around efficiency right so the idea of megawatts instead of megawatts where does efficiency tie in as you've seen uh, these uh, these different policies like SB1 roll out across the US and how does that how should uh, legislators and uh, and policymakers, uh, sort of at the state level as well as the local, regional, jurisdictional levels, be thinking about this mix. Yeah, that, that's a great question, and I love the use of the term megawatt. I think I can't swear to. It, I think we coined that term, a megawatt. You know, a watt not generated. Um, it is it is more cost effective to save energy than it is to build new generation. So and that and that manifests itself in you know a lot of different ways. Um, I also want to you know I think by now people get it, but what I want to do is I want to explain what energy efficiency is because there's a difference between conservation and efficiency that you know that sometimes people misconstrue. Um, efficiency is using energy in smarter ways. Conservation, while important, is you know, is the equivalent of, okay, let's turn down the heater and put on three or four sweaters. You know, with efficiency, you're not asking for as much sacrifice. You're trying to, and it's easier to implement. So you're trying to, to use technology in a smarter way. So instead of saying, reduce the heater and put on three sweaters, you're saying, when you're replacing your heater, replace it with this much more efficient heater that provides you the same amount of heat, but uses half the energy to do so. Um, you know, a, a, another concept, you know, we, we looked at is light bulbs, for example, uh, which is where I got the name for my firm. You know, a, uh, you, you can get the same amount of light from an LED as you can from an incandescent, but it just takes less energy to generate it. When you see on a bulb, the old school bulbs, the incandescents, we're all rated by watts. And watts is not actually a measure of light. Lumens is a measure of light. Watts is a measure of energy. But that's just the way we did it for years. Now, if you take two bulbs with the same amount of lumens side by side now, an old incandescent, let's say a 75-watt incandescent, quote-unquote, uh, you look at the comparable light output in an LED, and you're looking at five or six or seven watts. So your operational efficiencies are much greater. And it is, again, much cheaper to replace light bulbs than it is to build a central station power plant or even a solar farm. So these policies all go hand in hand. 
Uh, and I also want to talk about one thing that California did right starting in you know, the 1970s when we did uh, implement, we created the Energy Commission and we created huge energy efficiency uh, standards through Title 24 of our regulations. And if you look, and I'm sure you've seen this graph, Nico, there's a, a graph out there that starts looking at uh, per capita energy consumption in the United States in the early 70s, and the graph goes up. And then at about 1974, 75, California takes a right turn and is parallel. And since about 1974, 75, the per capita, per capita energy use in California has barely increased. While the rest of the country, the graph continued. And that's changed a little bit now in the last few years as the rest of the country is starting to implement some of those policies. But it's the per capita energy use. So we get less recognition for it. And I certainly did a lot of work. Well, our energy efficiency policies are just as cutting edge as our renewable energy policies and our solar policies. And again, I want to stress to people who might be listening to other jurisdictions, that doesn't mean making sacrifice, uh, making you sacrifice from what you're used to. That means making sure when we are building, our buildings are continually evolving. So we're using the latest insulation standards and we're using dual pane windows instead of single pane windows. And we're implementing all of these different energy efficiency technologies. So you can be just as comfortable in your home or your office and you can do all the things you're used to doing. It just takes less energy to do it. So I know that a large part of the work that you do looks at more than just clean energy and renewable integration. Uh, you look at, as we just discussed, the, the broad implications of energy efficiency. But what about what many in the U.S. may consider new age technology, the integration of uh, things like electric vehicles and, and charging stations and fleet management? How do these all tie back to the broader goals in, in California around the electric grid and the work that's being done at a legislative level? The uh, electric grid, uh, you know, is, is needs to be much more robust than it is now to handle the volume of electric vehicles that we anticipate here in California. Uh, but electric vehicles are an environmental policy, not an electric policy. And, you know, they, they obviously environmental policies can be, you know, electric policies and vice versa. But in this case, this is part, you know, our, our electric vehicle incentives and the policies at the, the California Resources Board and through the legislature are focused on greenhouse gas reduction. And because of the work that California has done over the years on you know, renewable energy uh, and energy efficiency, one of our biggest current sources of uh, emissions is our fleets of all, of all types, our medium duty, heavy duty, light duty fleets. So converting the, those fleets to electric powered uh, systems is a, a way to reduce GHGs further. Obviously there is, because of that, there is interplay between the grid and the vehicles. But some of that can actually be positive in that, you know, if you look at demand curves in California, they're not smooth. Um, you know, energy demand peaks at certain times and ebbs at other times. And one thing that I've always said, and I, you know, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm doing a talk or we're doing, uh, uh, you know, our conversation today and tomorrow I'm doing Wonk Wednesday. And I'm talking about, you know, energy policy tomorrow. One of the things that I always start my conversations with, and I'm going to do this tomorrow as well, is I, I like to ask the audience, what do you think the most important law regarding energy is in California? And it's not just California, but, but I like to start with California. And it's the law of physics. You know, it, it doesn't matter what else you do with energy policy. The law of physics isn't amendable. It isn't repealable. It isn't changeable. You have to work within the confines of that. And that means grid balance, load management, and all of those other things. So when you're looking at the current demand picture in California, it isn't a smooth you know, line. It, it's very peaky. 
electric vehicles can help smooth out that demand because of the you know the, the need to charge at night. And, and people look at you know where we are today and, and with electric vehicles and charging patterns. And I actually caution them: that's not the proper model. Um, if you want to look at where electric vehicle policy or electric vehicle uh, implementation will be, you need to look at Tesla. And I don't mean that because of the company. I don't mean that because you know of anything other than the Tesla vehicles go 300 plus miles. And that de- that drives de- de- demand, charging demand. Uh, if your car goes 300 miles, you don't have to worry about constantly topping off and filling up. I understand, you know, the old Nissan Leafs, so those are the 85 to 100 mile cars. You had to be very conscious of finding charging stations in the middle of the day, perhaps, you know, to enable a commute. If your car gets 300 plus miles, well, that's what a gas powered car does. You're no longer having those same same conversations. So you're more likely to want to charge at home. And, and as it is now, and I recognize this that that I'm about to give you is slightly skewed because it doesn't take into account the, the fact that most electric vehicles aren't owned by people in multifamily dwellings. 85%, and this was with the old school uh, vehicles, not the new longer range vehicles, 85% of all charging takes place at home. Well, it takes place at home at night. You know, I, I, my car charges when I'm asleep at night. So I don't really, you know, I don't care how fast it charges as long as it's charged when I wake up in the morning. So in that regard, electric vehicles can help with demand. There's something that I've heard, and I know you're, I'm going to anticipate a question here because I hear this all the time, and I have not been convinced that it's a good strategy. People talk about using electric vehicles to give back to the grid, and I don't think that makes sense. If I plug my car in in the morning at work, if I drive to my office and I plug my car in when I get there, I need a full battery when I get home, and I don't want you taking you know energy for me to send to the grid and leaving me without a battery. We better have some really fast charging times if you're going to use widespread implementation of electric vehicles as a grid storage and and backup uh, system. I'd rather see us do that in other ways. Now, I remain open, but I'm really skeptical right now uh, of the proposals that I have heard about using electric vehicles to help the electricity grid. I think those two, I, I, don't, I don't think those are compatible policy goals. I think we need to look at those separately. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and from a policy perspective, it's certainly, you know, you see different jurisdictions uh, on the East Coast in particular, there are, uh, there are areas where they're incentivizing installation of fast charging technology, Tritium and many others are bringing to market this fast charging technology. I mean, uh, you know, Ford just came out with their new, the the newest Mustang, right? That supposedly will charge eighty uh, percent in thirty minutes. The the Model Y is, and we see cars increasingly giving that type of fast charge. I also saw a recent post, and I'm going to forget who the person was that posted on LinkedIn. I, I followed the little rabbit trail of the argument here, but it suggested that because uh, you were able to charge at work and you're coming home, which is more and more common. And you're coming home with uh, a full charge, a surplus of, of what you need, especially recognized by uh, the computer systems uh, reading how much you typically use versus how much capacity you have. What to- what types of rewards are we going to see pop up that that do create this gaming environment, create this incentive environment where folks are given perks, for example? for having extra charge in their car that they can pull over for 20 minutes, plug into the grid, uh, get a discount on their burger, for example. You know, I mean, it, it, I, I mean, maybe I'm a skeptic and I'm a, I'm a technologist. I, I mean, I, I love technology, you know, but 
I, I don't see that happening. Um, I, it's inconvenient for people to want to do that. Um, you know, the, one of the advantages that I have long touted about electric vehicles is it actually has increased convenience. And that is, I don't have to stop at a gas station anymore. Um, I drive right by the gas station. I plug my car in at night. It's got a, and it's got a full quote unquote tank every time I leave in the morning. So I don't have to go to a gas station once or twice a week. Um, I don't get the sense that the people are going to want to do that. And, and I just had this conversation also, you know, with, with, uh, you know, somebody a couple of weeks ago from the hydrogen and fuel cell industry. And I was saying, you know, I'm not necessarily dismissing the technology, but there's a convenience level with electricity that you can't achieve with hydrogen fuel cell. I'm not putting a hydrogen fuel cell pumping station in my, in my house. Now, perhaps hydrogen fuel cell is a good technology for fleets where you need quicker refuel times, but for consumer vehicles, I, I'm skeptical of hydrogen fuel cell just because of the convenience. And that goes back to the same thing I was just saying to you. you know, I don't know that anybody's going to want to pull over on their way home. When you're driving home from work, you usually just want to go somewhere. I mean, a, dr a drive is not an activity. A drive is a means to get to an end. It's a means to get home quicker so you can see your kids quicker, so you can watch the ball game. So whatever it is, it's a means to an end. So the incentive that you'd have to pay somebody to pull over to dump some load into something else, I think just it, it just wouldn't work. I mean, I, I, I remain to, to be proven wrong on that, but I just don't see that happening. I think we are going to see a, a crazy, uh, very interesting new uh, economy emerging uh, as folks try to figure out whether or not there's capacity in all these uh, these mobile uh, battery applications uh, that we that we currently you know sit on top of and, and carry in on our person. The you know you touched on the difference between consumer vehicles and fleet vehicles. One of the things that I've been most dismayed by. In the United States, uh, over the last three years, absent companies like Proterra and, and even Bluebird doing their part, is the overall willingness, it would seem, for municipalities to begin introducing electric uh, buses, electric uh, vehicles into their fleet. And, you know, unlike renewables, where the technology began here. We uh, in the United States led policy innovation, uh, sort of, you know, in, in many ways following some of the things that were happening in Europe for sure. But we're able to uh, spur growth in renewables. I just don't see it around fleet management the way that you see in Asia and other places. I'd love to hear where you do see in other parts of the world, for example, models for implementation of these of fleet vehicle management and integrating electric vehicles. And if you see that dialogue happening right now in California or other jurisdictions in the United States. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I, a year or two ago, I posted something on Facebook and other social media about uh, Shenzhen, China, which has 16,000 electric buses. Uh, you know, you know China is doing a really good job of trying to electrify. There are a number of other um, you know, jurisdictions around the world that have focused on that. California's trying, um, and we have made progress. Uh, you know, if you look at, and maybe not as fast as we would like, but if you look at, uh, and I can give you a number of examples, you know, the, the requirements uh, on, uh, on some of the fleets means that UPS has switched a lot of their technologies from gasoline to electric and natural gas. Uh, Amazon just announced a partnership with Riven to uh, 
tr truck van maker, electric truck van maker, to purchase a significant number of trucks and vans. Uh, you know, it's not here yet, but it's coming. Uh, you know, certainly natural gas uh, is cleaner than diesel, but you know, we're also trying to get away from natural gas. But many, many, many buses around the uh, around California are natural gas powered buses because that was the clean technology a, a number of years ago. You know, the uh, we weaned ourselves off of uh, off of diesel and gasoline to natural gas. And the next logical step is to go to electricity. In fact, just yesterday, I was having a conversation with some folks uh, in the greater Sacramento region because we I, I'm working with uh, Electrify America and the Sacramento Regional Plug and Electric Vehicle Collaborative on a number of fronts uh, here to implement a wide variety of programs to accelerate the deployment of things, uh, all things electric. And we're just kind of a conversation about the new bus service that is starting from Davis to Sacramento. It's a common commute pattern. We're taking old buses off the road and replacing them with electric buses. I can go on and on. For example, um, one, of, one of my bugaboos has been the meter maids around Sacramento. The people who, I mean, a meter maid is probably an old, you know, dated term, but what the heck, I was a Beatles fan. And um, I'm not that old, though. Um, but, they, you know, they're the parking meter people. Uh, and they have these little three-wheeled vehicles with a little muffler that sticks off the back. There's only six of those left in operation in Sacramento, and those are being phased out in, the fa in favor of electric vehicles. Uh, if you drive around the city of Sacramento over the last two years, you will have probably noticed uh, a whole lot more Chevy Bolts with city logos on them. So these sorts of things are happening, maybe not to the degree of 16,000 buses in China and some of the other locations, but we are getting there. One of the things that we discussed early in, uh, the, in this idea around the leadership in California and, um, and, and what uh, the rest of the, the nation can and should be learning from what's happening in the, in the Golden State is around the latest controversy with Pacific Gas and Electric. You know, it's a, I guess, broadly speaking, there's a lot, to, there's a lot to unpack. We could spend many hours, many blogs or, and, and podcasts, no doubt, have been recorded around PG&E, but I know that you have a particular interest and, uh, and study around, generally speaking, kind of what's going on with PG&E. So for the uninitiated, what do you Mind uh, unpacking this for us to intermediate some of the myths and facts about what's happening with PG&E and what are the broader ramifications uh, for the market? It's very complicated, you know, just the same as, as, as you know, most policies, particularly energy policies. It doesn't you know, belie a simple, oh, it's just this and you'll fix it. In fact, you know, I wrote an op-ed that I expect will be published uh, probably later this week, possibly early next week on this. You know, and, and what I said in that op-ed and I've said in other places is, you know, the power lines don't actually care who owns them. I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but that's, that's you know, that's really what it boils down to. The power lines are causing the problem. So we need to start looking at how to fix it by, by focusing on that. There's a lot of other conversations and a lot of other issues that go uh, into this. Certainly the wildfires, the liabilities, the you know, historical structure of PG&E, all of these are important things to look at. But in order to stop the fires, you need to focus on the power lines. And it doesn't matter if we break PG&E up into 30 different municipal utilities. Uh, in fact, that might actually be in the short term, uh, make things uh, I don't want to say harder to fix, take longer to fix. Um, so I, what happened is this. Uh, I, let's just give a, a quick, quick history. California, for people who don't know it, everybody thinks of Los Angeles and San Francisco, but California is a very rural state uh, as well as a very urban state. We have 40 million people here. We have huge rural areas and we have huge, huge, huge urban areas. 
areas. In some ways, as we said earlier, it's, a, it's very much a bellwether for the rest of the country and even some, you know, the rest of the world. We are the fifth largest economy. 40 million people is certainly far more than many, many countries have. So you look at all those factors and say, okay, well, you know, let, let's start boiling it down from there. California energy is divided into really two main groups. You've got municipal utilities, which are, you know, say the Sacramento Municipal Utility District or the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, two of the bigger, more well-known ones. Uh, and there's others around the area that are either operated and, and run by the city council or by a separate independently elected board. Those are not for-profit electricities. But you know, we also have three very, very large, and they provide the bulk of electricity service in California, three very large uh, electric utilities, investor-owned utilities. There's PG&E in the, in the north, and then towards the south, uh, in the middle and the south, there's Southern California Edison, and in the very south, there's San Diego Gas and Electric. And those are regulated by the Public Utilities Commission uh, here in California with the input from the legislature for policy guidance and, and oversight as well. So, PG&E has, you know, millions of square miles of territory in their jurisdiction, and a lot of that is rural. The power lines and, and power lines, I should say, and I'm sure this is basic to most people, but I find I get this question all the time. There's two different kinds of power lines. There's transmission lines and distribution lines, um, and both have caused fires. The transmission lines are the things that take the power from, say, the, you know, dam facilities uh, in, you know, in Canada and Washington and bring them down here. The distribution lines are what take them from the substation and send them to the homes and businesses in an area. So, um, and there's, you know, there's implications for the grid and wildfires in both of those, both of those things. So what's happening is over the last number of years due to climate change, uh, the winds in California during our windy Santa Ana wind season, which is in the fall, the winds are stronger and the season lasts longer. So what has happened is several things have all converged at once to give us the crisis that we're in now. Over the last decade plus uh, or two decades, development in uh, you know, rural and semi-rural areas has increased and houses have been built nearer and nearer and nearer to fire zones. Some of that is because it's cheap. Some of that is because we don't have anywhere else to put it. And some of it's just preference. We like the views, we like the trees, we like the open space, all, all of those sorts of things. So we have more homes in proximity to areas that are prone to burn. You've got stronger winds, and this is measurable. Meteorologists have measured the winds are currently stronger in the Santa Ana conditions than they have been uh, you know, historically. Then you have drier brush. You have the bark beetle infestation, which has decimated a number of trees uh, and you know, millions and millions of trees, not just one or two. So that's you know, readily available fuel. Uh, you get the winter rains when we have it, sparks the, the quick growing invasive species and other plants. Then the summer comes, they all dry out, they form tinder, the wind season comes in November, and you get some incredibly powerful winds. And then you've got pieces of equipment that have historically been neglected, as the case was in the Paradise Fire, uh, lines that have been there for 100 years with little or no you know, upgrades and improvement. Because for the longest time, our focus was simply on bringing the electricity. We, we thought about safety, but we didn't think about safety in the same terms we think of it now. Our, our goal was to bring the electricity to where you are in a reliable way and, and as affordably as possible. And that was really what the focus was. And then we began implementing other things like renewable policies. But the grid was built to bring electricity from remote locations to, to load centers and to do that without 
you know, without going out or with minimal interruptions. Um, and I feel like I've gone on for a while, but I'll just conclude this part and let you ask another question by saying, you know, like if you talk to, to Californians in general, they really care about two things. They care about price and reliability. So when you're talking about delivering electricity, you know, that's what the focus of policymakers and the utilities has been to keep rates as low as possible with policy goals in mind, like, you know, renewable, renewables and things like that. Um, and to keep the lights on, you don't want to think about whether your garage door is going to open or whether lights are going to walk on it. If they don't, it's really a unique and rare circumstance. So those, all of that, that history of how the grid was built combined with these other factors in terms of wind, availability of tinder, uh, and, you know, and location of power lines and location of houses has given us a circumstance where during our windy seasons now, lines can be damaged easily. And if they do and they go down, they are almost guaranteed to spark a fire. And the problem is in the you know decade or two or three ago that fire may have still occurred it just didn't occur near anyone now it's being pushed along by faster winds and it's closer to population centers so you're hearing about them more and it has more uh, impact so that's kind of how we got here i've always thought that commercial solar should have an easy button for financing just like residential solar but credit ultimately has been the gating item until now Energetic Insurance levels the playing field so that project developers can now offer the same electricity savings to small and medium businesses that were previously reserved for the large commercial buyers in the U.S. Their in-rate credit cover policy provides the missing link or that easy button I mentioned earlier. For commercial solar, it's basically the FICO score that we're so familiar with in residential solar. And it enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. Go to energeticinsurance.com forward slash suncast and submit your projects today. What do you got to lose? 70% of projects qualify and the review process is drop dead easy. Go hit the easy button on commercial solar at energeticinsurance.com forward slash suncast. Hey, are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize the ROI for your customer? Extensible Energy's Demand X software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches that data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Head to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your project and to learn more about Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers. You can learn more at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. We hear in the news the headlines that PG&E is clearing bankruptcy and that there's rolling blackouts in California to avoid fires. I'm wondering, is this is this also an issue that other investor-owned and municipal utilities are experiencing? It's just not part of the headlines yet. And then secondary to that or, or correlated to that, what is being done? I mean, PG&E is going to have to go through a bank bankruptcy and restructuring, but what's being done on the ground in California now that perhaps other jurisdictions are watching or thinking about that will affect how the grid is in fact rebuilt? 
to answer the first part of your question, yes, other utilities are dealing with this. It's just not quite as you know publicized across the country. Um, you know, for example, a, a decade plus ago, there were huge wildfires in San Diego. Uh, San Diego Gas and Electric is a very large utility, but much, 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 much smaller than PG&E. But it also has rural areas in its territory, uh, and those uh, rural areas uh, were served by either by transmission lines bringing the the uh, power to load centers, or as some of the rural areas, it was distribution systems to serve the customers that were there, and they had huge fires. Uh, they have since done what's called hardened their infrastructure, which meant, you know, and this was as a re direct result of the fires and le legislative oversight, PUC oversight, lawsuits. They have really engaged in efforts to reduce the chances of fires by, uh, by addressing the the causes or the circumstances that would lead to a fire, making lines more resilient, insulating lines, undergrounding lines where necessary. There was just a hearing, an oversight hearing in the legislature yesterday where, uh, you know, San Diego Gas and Electric testified about all that they did. And the PG&E CEO was there and he's testified that, you know, he's looking to San Diego for a model. Southern California Edison has had fires almost every time you know, uh, PG&E has had a fire, Edison's had fires, and in California, you know, in Southern California, they're very well publicized. Obviously, because of what I do, I pay great attention to them, but those fires aren't quite getting the same attention as PG&E, in part because, you know, attention begets attention, and the first PG&E fires were so catastrophic. Now, anytime anything happens with PG&E, you know, that's where everybody looks, but there, there's fires in Southern California. And the last thing I want to say about this, and, and I'm not defending PG&E, this is not my job, is not to defend PG&E, but to explain situations uh, and put things in context. So a couple of weeks ago, there were fires up and down the, the state of California, uh, including the big one near Sonoma that I'm assuming everybody in the country saw because it was PG&E and because it was near Sonoma and wine country. There was also what was called the Getty Fire. And this is an area that this is right next door to my district when I was in the legislature, an area that I have been traveling through since I was a kid. You know, it is near UCLA uh, and near the Getty Center. And that's why it was called the Getty Fire. That territory is operated by a municipal utility, the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. The cause of that fire was a downed power line. However, that's where the similarities stop, and this is where it becomes very instructive to people. So that line had been maintained. The brush had very recently been cleared in exactly in exact accordance with the rules. And so what happened there was a tree branch blew. The investigators found this out. The tree branch had blown from outside the brush clearance zone into the power lines and knocked the power lines down. That is not the fault of the utility because it was unexpected. You can't, you know, if, if the utility had neglected their maintenance, that's one thing. So when you're looking at PG&E and say, oh, well, PG&E poor maintenance, it's not just PG&E and poor maintenance. You look at DWP where everything went according to plan and there was still a fire. So Yes, that's a detailed answer of yes, there, it is far more than just PG&E. So what is PG&E doing? Some things they're, they're, in the immediate term, they're doing what are called PSPSs, which is really a mouthful and they should have come up with a better acronym, but it's public safety power shutoffs. Those have also attracted a lot of attention in the news and a lot of attention in the legislature and the PUC. These are widespread intentional blackouts. So rather than run the risk during a windstorm, and we're, we're facing these in some territories in Northern California coming up later this week, in cases of extreme winds to avoid fires, they're de-energizing the lines. And it's effective. Uh, inspectors have found after the, the last couple of blackouts, 150 or more 
pieces of damaged equipment that had they been energized could have, we don't know, I mean, you can't prove a negative, could have started a fire. Uh, the Santa Rosa fire, for example, they de-energized the distribution system there, but left the, uh, the, the higher uh, voltage transmission lines energized because they thought those lines were more resilient and it was actually a transmission line in Santa Rosa that started the most recent fire there. So right now we're stuck in a circumstance where anytime there's a wind event, utility has a choice. Um, and that choice is dictated by policymakers and customers and, and, and our history. And that choice really is run the risk of a catastrophic fire or engage widespread blackouts. So you know, to answer the question that I always get, uh, at least when I say always, uh, you know, every time there's a fire, well, why do they have to black out everybody? And it's what we, you know, we affectionately call the Oakland Hills, you know, the the Oakland, the city of Oakland problem, or the, you know, the 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 North Coast problem. The way the grid is built was built the way I said earlier. You know, a lot of these cities are at the end of the line. You know, the, the generating facilities aren't in the middle of the city. The energy has to come through somewhere to get to the city. And, and, and a number of years ago, I want to say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, Oakland Hills burned because the energy lines are coming through Oakland Hills to get to the city of Oakland. You know, you may say there's no, no wind where I am or there's no fire risk where I am. Well, the lines have to go through areas where there's a high fire risk. So it's not just about where you are, but where the wind is and where the power lines are. So unfortunately, because the grid was built not like your home where you can turn off one room's light and leave the other ones on, um, grid was built for maximum uh, you know, reliability to keep the lights on at all costs. They didn't think about building in the capacity to turn off the grid in a strategic sort of way. And they're going to start doing that. There, there are technologies that will allow that. There's also you know, microgrids that can be implemented in certain areas to isolate those so that when the main system goes down, the microgrid can be fired up to provide power for those areas but it's really right now that, that that's you know that's not a, a situation that can be changed overnight these are not solutions that can be implemented in a day or two or three these are solutions that could take you know months to years to fully implement in you know in a widespread fashion the other thing that PG&E is doing is, you know, and I'm not sure to the degree because it's not as I'm not reading these things in the paper, I'm, and I'm not in the governor's office seeing the you know seeing the conversations that are going on there. What I'm seeing, and maybe it's just because it's making the headlines, is a lot of you know beating up on PG&E, which is eminently understandable. They have not done themselves any favors. I used to give the you know the CEO a little bit of a pass, like look, he's the new guy. He was brought in to fix this solution, this problem. But I think they've been you know still been some problems at least in the way they've dealt with the blackouts some of the rhetoric afterwards was horrific a week or two ago where he just basically said i'm sorry you don't have any food go to the food bank and hey at least we didn't burn your house down and you know if that sounds cavalier the way i said it that sound it was about as cavalier as the way he said it too so there's some problems there and i think they're starting to become aware of the current problems surrounding the pspss but again i go back to what i said you know a, a few minutes ago the root cause of this problem right now, not looking at historical management of power lines and investment and all the other controversies that people like to yell about, the root cause of the problem is the power lines and the distribution system, the transmission system, the poles, the wires. And until that is fixed, then we're going to run the risk and face the choice between blackouts and, and, and wildfires. So what my suggestion is, and again, this may be going on and I'm just not aware of the extent. I heard the hearing yesterday, I know it was said at the hearing, is they need to get out there and they have, you know, we got some winds coming up this week. As soon as these winds die down, 
they really need to do a deep dive, uh, you know, strike team approach where they look at you know, a combination of things, not just where the power lines are, but what is the prevailing wind direction? Where is the brush? Where have fires already burned? And get into those areas right now. And I know they're doing this. PG&E is already inspecting lines and making repairs, but I think they, they could probably do it in a more intensive and strategic way, perhaps hire additional crews to really get in there before next spring because we get a wind season in the spring. And the thing about the spring wind season, it's a little bit better just because the vegetation is greener, but we still get fires in the spring. But again, next fall, we're going to have the same circumstance. So the more poles you can secure, the more wires you can secure between now and next fall, the fewer blackouts we'll need. And, and I, I'm not suggesting we can do this all in a year, but you know, the more you do, the less you're going to have risk and the less you're going to have, have blackouts. And, you know, and then there's some areas, you know, you, you, I guess to, to, to conclude this, you hear a lot about undergrounding. And in some areas that might make sense. It's also really difficult when you're looking at, you know, it's not it's not undergrounding a power line under a street as they do in many new suburbs. You know, if you if you're living in an older area, you see what they call telephone poles, but they're really utility poles. If you go to the new suburbs, you don't see those poles sticking up out of the street because everything's undergrounded there. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about cities of a couple of thousand people who need energy, two, three thousand, four thousand, ten thousand people who are built in very remote rural areas, but you have to get the energy to that city. And that means undergrounding, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, and sometimes there's no roads nearby because the power lines don't have to follow the roads. They just go across mountain peaks. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't consider it. I just want to present the fact that to people, it's not as simple as you might think. Generating facilities, for example, we, we, we get power from you know, all over the Western United States. We get power from Washington. We get power from Canada. So if you're trying to get power from Canada to Northern California, think about the implications of undergrounding all of those power lines. Not saying we can't do it. Not saying it's not not something to be considered. I'm just saying that's a thousand plus miles of trenching and undergrounding. It's expensive. It's time consuming. You're often going over or through mountains and rock, and it's a, it's a huge challenge. So you know there that may be a solution in certain areas, but undergrounding the entire network is just not something that I really think anybody is looking at or should even be considered. As much as that might sound antithetical to the fires that we're talking about now. It's also an inordinate expense, uh, especially for an investor-owned utility that is declaring bankruptcy. After all, <laughs> I mean, and the, and the bankruptcy. I guess that's the one thing I didn't touch on. If you if you don't mind, real quick, the bankruptcy is simply that's not as a result of mismanagement per se. That you know, the way a lot of companies go into bankruptcy. You know, we we think a traditional entrance into bankruptcy. The bankruptcy is really a direct result of the fires. The liabilities in the fires were so beyond the scope of what PG&E had the ability to deal with. That because of the amount of damage, not just in Paradise, but the year before as well. In Paradise, there was about 19,000 structures completely destroyed, many lives lost. The year before, there was a series of fires, the Tubbs Fire and a number of others in the Napa-Sonoma area that destroyed about you know eight or 9,000 structures. Again, many homes. The liability from those fires and others combined was just so beyond what PG&E could handle uh, that they went into, they had to go into bankruptcy. It is such a huge question uh, around not just one entity, but how that being one of the largest entities in the state um, impacts the overall uh, state economy. I have to imagine that a number of folks that are your clients are thinking about their investment decisions based on PG&E's bankruptcy. And, and I'd love to hear from your perspective, maybe two or three minutes on the macroeconomics 
that this bankruptcy might, might imply for the state of California broadly? I'm not sure that the bankruptcy itself is, you know, is going to impact California's economy. You know, certainly not to dismiss the bankruptcy, but the bankruptcy of PG&E alone isn't going to impact the economy. The PSPs actually are impacting the economy. When you look at the the number of people who have been shut off and the facilities who have been shut off, that's, you know, and again, it's not going to jolt the economy, but there'll be some, you know, some minor impacts to the economy, probably more so the smaller you know, segments you go down, uh, it won't affect the macro economy of California necessarily, but it might affect the economy of a small city in a rural area, for example, where there's a, you know, a, a facility that has a couple hundred jobs and that facility can't operate for two or three days. So they're not producing the revenue, they're not producing the tax base, the people who work there aren't getting their paychecks because you're not going to pay them to not work. You know, you're seeing PG&E come in and saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to give a small amount of money to certain people, but that's not going to make up for the lost wages for the, you know, for the, the time and the lost tax revenue to the state. Um, and you're looking at, you know, at, at a widespread area that that's going to have uh, an effect, you know, depending upon how many PSPSs we have, how bad the winds are, what the area is, that's going to have an effect. I don't see this, you know, I, ultimately somebody's going to invest some way in this system because you've got a 13 million customer base that is providing a monthly amount of revenue to PG&E. Um, so, you know, you could break that up in a municipal utility and that's a different, you know, set of discussions. But ultimately, those people who live in the greater Northern California area, and that is a, and this, the PG&E map is available online if anybody wants to go look at PG&E service territory, just Google PG&E service territory and a map should pop up. There's 13 million people who need electricity and somebody's going to provide it to them. Whether it's PG&E, whether somebody comes in and buys PG&E, whether it's municipalization of PG&E, somebody's going to provide it to them. They're not going to go with, without electricity for long periods of time. So do I see any macro impact to the economy? No. Do I see any impact to investment? No. You've actually got the bankruptcy judge, I think it's today, it might be tomorrow, is listening to testimony from different uh, investment firms competing to, you know, to, to either control ownership of PG&E, buy ownership of PG&E. So I think there'll, there'll be investment into PG&E. Uh, it's, the question is, how is it operated? Um, and, I, and I don't really see any, any changes in our long-term policy goals vis-a-vis -vis renewables. Some of those actually may be enhanced by some of this as we look at you know, the in, increased use of microgrids and battery backup storage and, you know, and distri distributed energy. That, that actually might be helped by some of these conversations as we try and figure out you know, how, to, how to deal with uh, you know the, the whole structure going forward. So, do I see any macro? No, I, I, I don't see any long-term macro impact to to the grid. Um, and you know, I guess that ties also into you know people like to to criticize California and point fingers at California, but is Cal and I've seen headlines recently. Is California becoming unlivable? And they pick big pictures of the you know fires. And then I'd ask you, you know, is California any more unlivable than Louisiana, Florida, Texas, or some of these other states that get hammered by the hurricanes? We're working to change the situation. We're well aware that it's not, you know, it's not sustainable to continually go through, you know, an annual choice of blackouts or fires, and we're working to address that. And, and I think we will have that under control. Um, it might not be, you know, next week, but, we're, you know, it's, it's not as if we're oblivious to the problem and, and have decided we just don't want to fix it. Well, it is complex, and we will continue to try to explore and, and understand how the macro economy, the investments into uh, the needs to repair this 100 plus year old grid and the very innovative and often 
category leading policy and strategy from California can and will impact the rest of our United States. Lloyd Levine is the president of Filament Strategies, joins us today from his Sacramento, California-based consulting firm. He's also a senior policy fellow at the UC Riverside School of Public Policy. Lloyd, where can folks uh, who would love to, to reach out to you, find you? Uh, where do you? Where do you call home on the internet? Are you on LinkedIn? And how can folks reach out? Um, I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, so you can find me on any of those. Um, yeah, and I'm pr- pretty easy to find. Just do a quick Google search. I don't need to list everything. You know, you can certainly go to uh, you know my website and find more information out there. My email address is just Lloyd at filamentstrategies.com. Uh, you know, happy to engage as much as I can. I, you know, I, I, you know, I know you have a lot of listeners, so you know, I I do have work and other things, so I might not be able to respond to everybody right away. But I'll try and get back to people as as, as much as I can. And uh, you know, perhaps if I have a lot of questions, I'll forward them to you and suggest we answer them on the air. Well, thanks again for joining us on Suncast for this Tactical Tuesday, Lloyd. Appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back soon. Thanks, appreciate it, Nico. You know what I love about you? You'd never stop learning. That's why you're still hanging out here for the outro message. Well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more over at the blog at mysuncast.com. Well, I see you here listening to the closing credits, so I know that you're dedicated to improving yourself personally and professionally. I'm also committed to continual improvement, which is why I'd like to invite you to take a couple of minutes to give me your feedback in our first ever listener survey. I do read each and every one of these, so I'd encourage you to please take the survey over at mysuncast.com. As a thank you, tomorrow I'll be drawing at random, finally, among the survey entries and our Suncast tribe email subscribers to gift one year of membership to the Suncast Guild. That's right, starting in 2020. One person will get one free year into the guild. This program will be getting a lot of long-awaited upgrades in the coming year, including Q&A and Ask Me Anythings, webinars, a lot more on the book club, lots of stuff uh, coming at you. So if you're familiar with the Suncast Guild, or even if you're not, go check out mysuncast.com forward slash member. Remember that a survey entry and an email subscription, either one, will get you into that drawing. Hey, thanks again to you, my fellow Solar Warrior, for tuning in to this and so many other Suncast episodes. I can't do this without you, and I'm so excited to come every week and spend time bringing you amazing interviews, insights, tools, tips, and networking opportunities for the next decade to come. And hey, if you've all filled out a coaching application, thank you as well. I'm scheduling your clarity call ASAP, so please keep a lookout in your inbox. Thanks for those who took action on that short time opportunity and call lastly once more thanks to our q4 sponsors who've helped make this podcast possible energetic insurance and extensible energy you can learn more about both at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor you can always check that out as well if you are interested in being a sponsor for q2 we already have q1 lined up as you might expect well from all of us here at suncast we wish you a merry christmas and a very Happy New Year. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.